Welcome, listeners. Thank you for joining us. This is a big deal for Brandon and I. This is the 100th episode, and we talked about who we want to get on, and, you know, we decided on someone that we, we both look up to, both as a person and a writer, and we just landed on Joe Lansdale. He means a lot to us. He's on a day-to-day basis, still in the genre, very heavily involved, and he's just producing like no other. So, I'm just really happy to say that we have nearly two hours of phenomenal conversation with him. Uh, Brennan, what are your thoughts on this episode and it being the 100th episode? How, how do you feel about that? Because it's, it's been only a year and a not even a year and a half, maybe, since we recorded over 100 episodes now. Slightly over a year, a year and like three months. Uh, my biggest thoughts are if you're tuning into this and you've caught anywhere near the first hundred episodes, even if you've only done half of that, uh, we're we're very thankful to have your listenership. Uh, that you heard one episode and you actually wanted to come back and listen to us yap and yap and yap again. Uh, but this this is a special episode, and it's you know like Patrick said, it's because of the person we got on. Uh, Joe Lansdale is a staple of the genre, and not just this genre, but pretty much everyone you could name. Uh, and we are absolutely honored to be able to share a almost two-hour conversation with him. And just uh, for those that may think they don't know his work, you will be probably very surprised that there's like a 99% chance you do know his work. Uh, from movies to comic books to novels to television, he's done everything that a writer could ever want to do. So just tune into this episode, Google the guy if you haven't, you know, looked into his books yet, and I hope you enjoy this. Thank you. Welcome to Dead Headspace, a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes killing time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're talking to the author of too many things to list here, so we'll just say the author of the Happen Leonard series, Joe Lansdale. Say hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Let's just. Uh, I couldn't resist. Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's, so far, you and Chuck Falnick and a few others have done that, and it's funny as hell every time. Um, <laughs> let's just jump into it. What got you into horror? Well, I, I I didn't really just come into horror unto itself. I mean, I always read a variety of different things, but. Mm-hmm. Probably the first horror that I remember reading was Edgar Allan Poe, and that's what my you know mother got for me. She got a collection of Poe 
which, you know, these days people will go, oh, my God, you're giving this young kid this pole. It was wonderful. And I think that the other thing that got me into horror were films, too. So it started with Poe, which read, uh, led to, uh, you know, Algernon Blackwood and, and Arthur Macon and all because there were volumes of that stuff available to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, there uh, the films that they did, like the Vincent Price films that Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont wrote scripts for those influenced me. The old universal films were especially because they were on all the time at that when I was young, because they were, they were just then being put on television. Mm-hmm. They were, were becoming a television staple, but they were just starting to be. And so I had all of those influences. And then of course, course Poe led me to read uh, anything with horror elements. And a lot of the science fiction that I liked was had, you know, had horror in it, even, um, you know, Forbidden Planet, which is a great science fiction film. It's got horror. And it's got this 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 terrible creature that's outside uh, this this walled compound that's beating on the door. You know, it's it's the Tempest redone, the Shakespeare play redone as a film. But it certainly had horrific elements. And at that time, when I was young, it it certainly made my skin crawl to think of this thing trying to get in and making knots and holes or in the door, you know. You know what, um, going back to the older 50s films, I believe it's from the 50s, the Blob, the original. Uh, my, yeah, I did. Uh, my godfather uh, uh, was an independent actor up in the uh, Boston area, so he got me big into like all the older films that he grew up with, and he's about the same age mm-hmm. as, as you. And um, I just, mm-hmm. I, I have a big love for that one, um, and it creeped me out. Just seeing this big amorphous thing just sucking up everything in its path it's it's great and all the old black and white horror films too Mm -hmm. um and also alfred hitchcock man like the birds is one of my favorite movies yeah Yeah, i i think psycho for me uh was even more horrific you know but even though it was there's nothing supernatural about the birds you don't know what it is you know if you've read the story by daphne de murray it's uh uh daphne de murray it's um it's very similar. The concept is similar. They just had to blow it up to make it longer, but it's a strange unsettling story. You know, it's just like the birds have had enough. (laughs) And so they, they start showing up everywhere going, yeah, we got your number, you know, and uh, it's never really solved. There's no real solution to it. And I think that that was one of the things that was marvelous about the birds. But for me, psycho was the, was the film of Hitchcock's that really scared me, but it's not my favorite Hitchcock film. You know, my favorite one's uh, shadow of a doubt. And okay. it's, it's scary in a realistic way because it was a small town. Like I lived in and there was this person who seemed normal, who was not normal. So I think always I've loved all of it, but I think always those things that are connected to reality and horror uh, have appealed to me more. And frequently there are things that horror is a component, but it's not the, always the complete, you know, driving force of it. Mm-hmm. Brennan, why don't you jump in, bud? I'm thinking if that's not, you know, uh, the the key element to your writing, what is horror is there, but it's 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 a it's in it's a part of it. It's not, you know, the entire thing. And you know, I I would say that there isn't any genre that is, you know, there isn't any piece of your work that's strictly one genre or the other. There's always some bleeding, right. and it was kind of cool to hear that that's. Uh, 
that comes in at a young age. So it's, it's safe to say, you know, reading kind of took you from a young age that you grew up with yes. that love of reading. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, the, my, my first love of reading, and I may have discussed this before, and if, if I did, uh, I apologize, but was comic books. You know, I, I loved comic books. I wanted to write comic books. I wanted to draw comic books. And I, the old joke I always tell is, and it's not entirely a joke is that at four, when I first started trying to write comic books and draw them, uh, I was a brilliant artist. I mean, I was incredible. And then when I was eight, I was still that same four-year-old artist. So uh, I wasn't really all that incredible after all. But uh, I found the stories now. I had a greater knack for the stories. And in fact, in my grades, first and second grade, my teacher at that time, Mrs. Craycraft, when she needed to grade papers or something, she would say, Joe, come up the front and tell stories. So I would sit on this little chair that they had and tell stories. And years later, when I saw her, uh, she said, you recognize that chair over there? And I said, you know, I do. She said, I used to put you in that chair and you could keep everybody entertained while I did. Graded papers. So, and I and I remember asking her too. I said, "Did you think I was going to be a writer?" She said, "No, I thought you were going to be a scientist." <laughs> and she meant it because I was so interested in science fiction. And I think I think my first greatest okay. love early on was science fiction more than horror. But I liked science fiction that had horror elements, you know. And and the movies I liked had horror elements, and a lot of the science fiction stories I like had horror elements and there is a there's a fine line between mystery and suspense and horror uh anyway you know um i like something mm -hmm. where you, when you're when i was writing what i learned was pacing and sort of this sense of uh great imagination gone wild from Edgar rice burroughs and i learned these kind of creepy psychological aspects from poe i didn't know i was learning these things you know but and then i learned uh from mystery, how to construct a story overall, you know, and that, that helped me later on when I wrote other things that had a less obvious mystery element or a less obvious plotted element. But once you understand that, once you understand mysteries, you can write anything because they teach you uh, the construct of how all stories work and they teach you the construct, how they work in a very if you if you really study them, uh, a very clinical manner, and this is more the traditional mysteries I'm talking about. But if you learn those, then you can write anything, and then you can bring the atmosphere of horror into them. You look at Sherlock Holmes; they had the mystery, but a lot of those had that sense of horror. You know, when you when you think about Hound of the Baskervilles, you know that's uh, that's certainly horror, and there's there's bits of that in in a number of those stories. So those elements are there, and and it also if you write convincingly about characters, you can make people believe anything, you know? So it's, it's all of these things come together. Most of my stuff, it, it, there's going to be a moment in it when the techniques of horror, if not necessarily uh, the more obvious furniture of horror is going to be in the works just about all the time. Not maybe not a hundred percent, but damn close. Yeah. Brendan, uh, I'm going to jump in super quick, just a quick comment. Uh, Ronald Kelly, friend of ours, and yeah, ours as well. Like it's funny. It, it's really interesting. You guys are of the similar age, both Southerners, and you guys are both had a love for comics and not only writing them, but illustrating them. Um, yeah. I, I just – not really a question, just a comment. I think that's really fascinating because you guys – I mean, you're still kicking ass. 
That's yeah. awesome. As a youngin, as a youngin, it's great to see that. I'm like, oh, I could do this for forever. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that the thing about that, that's you know, when you're when you first want to do it, you don't think of it a career in a career sense because you don't understand really what a career is. You don't understand that people will pay you for this or that you, you know, you have to produce stuff that people want. That's not what you're thinking, but you're thinking that this is what you want to do. You know that you feel driven to create stories. And, you know, when I was probably around 11 or 12 or somewhere in there, I began to understand that people paid writers for stories. And so it was at that point, instead of, you know, wanting to be a writer, when I read Edgar Rice Burroughs and I finally figured out that he got paid for creating all that, I no longer wanted to be a writer. I had to be one. And I think, I think comics, I think, especially if you look back in mine and Ron's generation, we're, we're in a similar age group is that comics were a big, big component for a lot of us because it wasn't like now when you can see movies with all these special effects, comics had special effects. It's why I think there's a decline in comic sales is not only for a lot of other reasons, I, you know, there's not one reason, but one of the major reasons is comics can no longer do what the movies can't. The movies can now do just what the comics do and they can make it move where before it was always a limited amount of special effects, or you kind of had to squint and accept. And that's what we did a lot of times with old horror films. You, you would see a, a film or a story and it obviously took place on a soundstage. But you didn't see a soundstage because you, your, your imagination was taught differently and you developed that enormous imagination early on. I think and I say this with, you know, I, I, some trepidation because I'm sure somebody will say no, but I think our imaginations grew greater. And I think it's because if you read my work, I do think that there is an imagination at work. And even as I grow older, I think I'm more imaginative than I was. And the difference is I can now write better and I can write in such a way that, that um, the imagination can now be painted on the page more convincingly, you know. And uh, I, I think that that has a lot to do with it is learning to play in the cardboard box instead of with all of these toys and things. Because in my case, I can't speak for Ron. In my case, we didn't have it. I had I certainly had toys. I certainly had things. My parents were wonderful people. We just didn't have a lot of money and there weren't you know, there weren't the same kind of approach to raising children. Then teenagers were invented during the fifties and I was born in 51. So there was just this whole different attitude that was developing and childhood was not the same as it is now. You know, we, we grew up a little quicker. By the time I was 18, I was out of the house. You know, I wasn't living in my mom's basement. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the idea was, you know, people say, well, now people can't make a living. Well, shit, you know, all we had was a, a shoe shine and a smile as the old Willie Loman, uh, uh, you know, quote goes. Uh, but, uh, you know, you you did what you had to do. You know, you I worked some horrible jobs and, and I worked steadily until I could do otherwise. My intention was to go to college and get an education so I could, you know, have a, something to teach and live on so I could write because I never really knew for sure that I always knew I was going to be a writer. I always knew I would sell but I never knew for sure I could make a living at it. Hmm. But those people, and this is a full circle going back to the comics and everything else. Those are the people I wanted to be. That's great. Uh, you know what? There's so many points to pick uh, to, to zero in on. I'm just going to go with the one of making people believe 
what you write is something that could be anchored in our world. Um, and I'm going to go with the one that got me, and I didn't know it at the time, got me into your work, which was Bubba Hotep. I was a kid when that came out. I still own the DVD. I still got that weird ass, creepy um, action figure of uh, Bubba Hotep. I love it. I, yeah. I had, I don't know how many times I've seen that it. That is but a creepy one. <laughs> it's funny. It's creepier than the one in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as far as the movie goes, the way it's shot, it's it aspects of it is shot kind of like an Evil Dead. Um, but you made JFK a black man and Elvis still alive. And I'm like, I believe that they're actually fighting a mummy somewhere in Texas. That's I, I'm, a, I accept that. So, so I just, I don't know, man, there's no other, there's no question for this. Brennan, take over. <laughs> I, I want to jump back into the comic thing real quick. What did uh, writing comics teach you about storytelling? Well, you, you know, I, a lot of things, really. And, you know, obviously, when I was writing comics as a kid, I truly didn't understand the form. You know, I, I would make a, I would take a page and do this so that I had four squares and then I would fill those squares and I would try to write dialogue or I would write the dialogue or or write what was happening. You know, the panel because panels were far more descriptive back then. They you know, comics hadn't become as sophisticated yet. And so I was trying to do that. And I was writing like trying to little funny animals or Woody Woodpecker because I could draw Woody Woodpecker because I used to watch these shows about how to do it by Walter Lance. But what they did teach me was story progression. You know, they they taught me that if you did something here and, and you did and you got to here and it took you forever for the person to turn around, then you weren't doing too well. You know, if a person say, pulled a gun here, it better be shooting in the next panel, you know, so you're moving it on. And uh, I think what the greatest thing that comics taught me, though, and this is, I think this is the truest thing, is a combination of, 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 of three things. The first thing it gave me when I was reading superhero comics was this idea of, of um, scope. Now, I'm not really great at scope in my novels. That's not something I do as well as others. But it taught me that in the sense that there's this world that seemed bigger than the comic itself, than the panel itself, you know. But and and the other thing that it taught me was just to open my imagination because this was, you know, there's guys flying in the air, running at super speed. And I I was these characters were real to me in one part of my imagination and still are. There's some place in there where I believe in the Flash and Superman and Batman and Happen Leonard. And uh, so what. But the most important thing I learned from comics for me was the blending of genres. They did that early on when you would read Batman, it, the Batman of the 50s and the 60s. He, he did time travel. He did space travel. He went back in the time to the old west. He went he had adventures on uh, um, uh, this old kind. I, I guess you kind of like say a dude ranch or something like that. But all of these things were always bringing in these different components. And a lot of people don't think about it and don't realize it. But like even and reflected in some of the shows like the Roy Rogers stuff, the Gene Autry stuff. And, you know, you'd have people riding horses, then using a telephone and then there'd be an airplane. But what people don't realize is that in the late 1800s, when you're still having uh, you know, the frontier or the end of the frontier, the people had telephones, you know, telephones came along in the late, you know, 1800s. They uh, were beginning to have 
you know, devices that we didn't think about. The early 1900s, you were beginning to see cars, you were beginning to see airplanes, but people in some areas still rode horses, Mm -hmm. still used wagons, you know, did all that. So all of that stuff in those things isn't as far off as it seems. A lot of that was just kind of doing stuff that was contemporary. And uh, we look at it now as just being this weird mixture of genres. And indeed it was, but a lot of it came from real life. When I was growing up, a lot of people had wagons with their stuff, with their mule drawn by mules that they carried their plows to the field, you know, and there were a few people, that's how they got around still. They hadn't changed any. Now that doesn't mean that was the most common method, but it means that I had this weird growth myself, weird period where I was seeing the changing and collision of times, but my father and, and, and those people that the old West and those movies that reflected that later on, weren't that far off really. Man, you know, you know, the the comics did that comics taught me that is to, is that is to think naturally that genres go together. I never think of them like I'm, you know, I always hate it when somebody says, yeah, I mix genres too. And they have a Western and they have a vampire. Well, I've done that. And that's, that's kind of mixing genres, but that's really like a fruit salad when you do it right. And I think I learned to do it better as I went on is it's more like a blender. It's not like it's got your grapes. It's got that. It's more like it's all in the blender to such an extent that you can taste all of it, but it's not as easily identifiable. That's the difference. You're not blending by writing a vampire novel in, in the future, you know, unless all other components become you know, more naturally fitting. Otherwise, you're just writing a vampire novel. It takes place <laughs> in the future, but it's not a blended, uh, you know, kind of story. And those are the kind that appeal to me. I've, I've certainly enjoyed the others, but I think there's a difference. I, I, I really, really do believe there's a difference. Bernie, go ahead. Man. I, I was going to say, I, I think that's a great, um, uh, the way you identified it as the superhero genre, kind of doing that in comics. And I think to a degree, they're still doing it with the movies. You know, you've got a superhero movie, but, you know, this one's also got elements of a political thriller. That one has elements of a heist movie. This right. one has, you know, horror elements and like kind of fantastical elements. But, you know, back to your your point on, you know, treating it like a blender. I think that's a great point. There's so many, uh, you know, horror specifically, let's say. There's so many books you could read that uh, somebody who, you know, doesn't like horror could read and enjoy uh, because they're not necessarily thinking this is horror because X, because Y, because Z. Those elements are definitely in there, but they're mixed in, they're blended in uh, so that you can kind of think of it as just a a, a story, a great story, Um yeah, I think that, I think that's excellent. And I do have to mention, Joe, I've got a I've got an eight year old in bed in the other room. Uh, he should be sleeping, but he's probably not. And he does not care about who we're talking to. For the most part, he does not care that, you know, I wrote a book, all that stuff could care less. But when I told him that we were having somebody on who wrote for Batman, the animated series in the 1990s, his <laughs> eyes went wide and I think that's the most impressed he's ever been. <laughs> I think my kids, the first time they were, yeah. first time my kids were impressed with me at all was that, wait a minute, you're writing Batman, you know? And before that I'm, I'm writing all the time, but you know, they grew up with it. They didn't think it was, but when I did Batman, that, that, uh, that was identified uh, differently. And you know, when you think about it, like, uh, 
Michael Crichton wrote a book called Eaters of the Dead. I don't know if you've ever read it or not. They made a film out of it called The Thirteenth Warrior, which is it's good. It's fun, but it's not, it's not as good as the book, but that book is without a doubt. It's a historical, it's a mythological book. It has, it mentions Lovecraftian things. It deals with the concept that Neanderthals and their particular viewpoint and None of that's right now. We know better now. But at that time when he did it, it explains the whole concept and idea behind Beowulf. And all of that is not like separate compartments. It's all blended. And when you take the Andromeda strain, which he wrote, and, and I'm sound like I'm really pitching Michael Crichton, and I'm not really a huge <laughs> fan, but I like these particular books a lot. And the Andromeda strain is science fiction. It's a thriller. It's a horror uh, story. It's it's tremendous for that. And those are good ways to learn. You know, you take William Goldman's The Marathon Man. It's a it's certainly a thriller, but it is also a a novel about social issues and historical events that have led to this particular moment. And so therefore, it's to me, it's different. I'm not much interested in how many ways somebody can die. You know, I that that passes early on for, I think, most most writers are should. And I, I think if you look sometimes around, you'll be shocked at what really um, blends these elements and that it can be horror, science fiction, fantasy, what have you. And those are two I just happened to think of because I, I reread uh, Eaters of the Dead just recently. So. I get to read that. Uh, he also wrote for Superman animated series and the new adventures of Batman. I think the other one was. So tell your son that. Yeah, and I also wrote. Uh, I wrote the movie Son of Batman for the you know animated movie. I didn't know that. One. That's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, I wrote. Uh, I wrote a Jonah Hex short that's not the Batman one, but another one that was done separate. And I wrote some scripts that never got made too. So how did you even and, get and that? stuff of mine has been done in animation like uh, Love, Death, and Robots. Oh, right for season two. One and two. I didn't know. Holy shit. I've seen season one. I just never really looked into the writers. That's cool. Well, the dump, I did one called The Dump. That's based on a short story of mine. They adapted it. I didn't do the adaptation. And they did Fish Night. And then this season, they did The Tall Grass. And uh, so, you know, I've had I've had other things animated like that. And there looks like there's going to be some in the future that right now I can't talk about. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, and what what was that like um, writing for? I mean, how did you even get into writing for animated shows? They um, called me up and asked me if I wanted to do it. But I think what led to it was that I had written a couple of Batman short stories for these anthologies. You know, that came out right after the uh, uh, the first Batman film with Keaton. You know, and. Uh, um, also, I had a friend who went on to work at D.C. in New York who worked in, uh, you know, the marketing section of it. And he showed me the opening to the when I was in New York and I was in D, at D.C. Comics, he showed me the opening of Batman. And he said, would you like to write for that? And I said, oh, man, that's great. And I have a feeling that, well, I know that he put in a word for me. And and I think so that helped, but that alone didn't do it. The fact that I had written Batman, the fact that I'd already been writing for selling stuff for, oh my God, already maybe 20 years, you know, and then somewhere in there, I did the Batman novel and the Batman young adult. I think they may have come after the 
animation animated series. I'm not sure, but that really it. I'd, I'd had something that people could look at, whether I knew that's what they were going to look at it for or not. And I, I had a, a connection at DC and they just called me on the phone. I, uh, I think it was Michael Reeves that called me. Uh, it might've been Alan Burnett. I don't remember now. It's been so long ago, but they, they asked if I wanted to give it a try. And I said, I did. And I was kind of like, uh, you know, I wasn't a staff writer. I was the one when they had one, they thought, well, this would be good for Lansdale. And so they would call me up and see if I wanted to do it. And, and I did, and I did a Superman and I wasn't as good for Superman, but they, they used some of the stuff I wrote and I got plot uh, credit for it. And uh, so I, I ended up working on both series, but the Batman one was more in my wheelhouse, you know? I love that. I've I watched that every week, man. So that's what I found uh, that. I still watch it now. You know, you know my favorite episodes? I wrote it. I I watch that series all the time. There's some so wonderful good. stuff in that. I um, is, yeah. We're gonna have your son Keith on later. We're actually gonna have Casey on too um, later in October with Alan Dallow and a few others. But I bring up Keith because I, I saw something. I think I even commented on it. Um, but he posted a picture of a of a uh, script of his favorite Batman episode, yeah. and it's right. one you wrote. And you said from Big Dog to Little Dog. That's stuck in my head. I'm like, that's so, right. like like for me and my son. I call him my little bear, and I'm his papa bear. Yeah. My wife is called Bear. I call her Bear, and uh, uh, Casey is like is Panda or, or Cub or Bear, <laughs> Little Bear, and then Keith is a Little Dog or Dog. You know, the only thing is now Keith's bigger dog than I am. <laughs> <laughs> you could, no offense to Keith, but I'm sure you could still kick his butt. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> does your is your wife an artist of any kind? Because your two kids are. You are. Karen was interested in music and was in the band when she was young, but she also founded the Horror Writers Association, you know, back when it was called Howl. And, uh, you know, Rick McCammon came up with the idea, but a lot of people don't know that my wife actually is the one who put it together and founded it. I and then no Dean idea. put some money into it and made it more professional. But she's the one that put all of it together, got all the people, got the officers and all that. That all is Karen. Holy and she shit. got a, a recognition for it from the Horror Writers Association. But it was the Horror Writers of America when she did it. It was Howl when it was first discussed, because that's the title that Rick McCammon, you know, had for it, but she also wrote a couple of stories with me and she used to write articles about the HWA, you know, a handful, but her interest has been far more managing, uh, you know, our careers, uh, so that, you know, our, we have something to eat besides books. <laughs> and so, you know, she, she's been terrific at that. And, and, uh, what, she, what she did allowed all this to happen. I always, you know, I always say, and very honestly, I, I owe my career to my wife. And one of those things is that when we were first married, I had begun to sell. About the time we got married, I started selling nonfiction. First thing I ever wrote sold. First, everything I wrote sold, all the nonfiction. And then when I switched to fiction, uh, it was it was harder. And I was doing it occasionally, you know, because I was working and all that. And I didn't understand how I needed to manage my time then. And so the weather got really bad. I was working at uh, in in the rose fields, and uh, also I'd found a dead man, 
uh, which is, uh, you know, was an influence because I felt like, well, time's running out. People get dead. You might want to do something. So, um, my, my wife had about three months where the weather was so bad that I couldn't really get farm work, you know, and we, it looked was predicted to be a bad winter. But my wife had just got a job working for Southland in a big freezer truck. And she had to wear like it looked like a hazmat suit, but it was, you know, the polar bear suit, we called it. And uh, so she had to wear that to go in to put lunch meat and stack it for uh, Southland, which took them to 7-Elevens and different things like that. And uh, she said, well, you know what? I got this job right now. And I was trying to figure out what kind of work can I get? Because I never went without work, you know. And she said, well, before you do that, why don't you take three months off and write? Because I got this job. But when I come home, you better have some. And uh, so the terror uh, uh, you know, struck me. And also, I, I went to work and wrote for three months. And I wrote a short story a day. And in fact, I wrote 90 short stories, literally. So I may have, I, I may have written one, two in one day one time or something. I don't remember. But I know at the end of three months, I had 90 stories and I started marketing them all, you know, almost immediately from the first one. And back then there were lots of magazines that took fiction. You could take 15, 20 markets easy for every story, you know. And so I started sending them out. Four years later, I had a thousand rejects, which we kept and collected because all those stories really sucked. And but it was a way for me to learn how to write, because when my wife come home, I was finished. There it is you know, and uh, then it had to go in the mail. And so it did. So I've always felt that that was a moment when I got a lot of the uh, crap out of my system, the things that, you know, I, I, I was less likely to be immediately influenced by something. You never lose your influences, but, you know, you realize that, I, OK, that story has been done. And all I did was rewrite, you know, the Twilight Zone. Or something. Uh, the Twilight Zone was one of those things that was, you know, it's a was a backbone of people my generation that got into this kind of work. We all were influenced by and struck by the by the Twilight Zone. Alfred Hitchcock, Outer yeah. Limits, Thriller. You know, Thriller was another one. But I got all that stuff out of my system, or at least most of it. You probably never get them all all of it out. Right. And uh, I then started selling. You know, and once I started selling, then I sold two, then I sold three and then, you know, stories. And then all of a sudden I sold a, a novel and I was full time. I mean, all of a sudden it took me about nine years, eight or nine years. But if you look at how long I had been wanting to do it, but once I decided to do it, when I, I sold that first thing I ever wrote, well, I wrote with my mother under O. Rita Lansdale. It was just about that long. It was uh, three or four paragraphs for Farm Journal. And it won a prize as best article. And so we split $25, $30. I don't remember what it was exactly. And But I was hooked then. I thought, I can do this. This is what I've always wanted to do. And then eventually when I first started selling, I was selling crime fiction. And I wrote for Mike Shane Mystery Magazine before I started writing for and some anthologies. I, I did some horror stories for anthologies. Uh, my first horror story was The Princess that I bought by uh, Bill Pronzini for a collection, but, or an anthology rather. And it was not very good, but it opened the doors for me. Then I got into Twilight Zone magazine and I just kept spreading and I kind of became like the king of anthologies. And that's still my, my, my more common place to appear is I write a lot for anthologies 
And um, so there, you know, there you have it. That's how I dip my toe in. And I, I have my wife to thank for that or to blame, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> Brandon, I got one thing I want to jump into, actually two, but jump in after me, if that's all right with you. Sure. Um, for the longest time, because I, I been writing for as long as I can remember, and uh, it kind of piggybacks off of what you were talking about with your wife, is uh, when I met Tara, it was in 2013, and that's when a few big things started for me. I went back to college, which got me the career I got, which supplies my house now, but on top of that, mm-hmm. she got me back into reading because in high school, due to the curricular reading we had to do i felt like an idiot and i was like guess it's not for me and then when i met her uh it just clicked i started reading um i started writing i was like i want to be a novelist and it took me i've written over 10 books now and i haven't had any published i've run a shitload of short fiction novellas and all that but only five short stories published and for the longest time i thought i was like what the fuck am i doing (laughs) but i can't stop writing I'm glad because there are some debut novels or novellas. It's just like, I wish I never wrote that. And I'm hearing you say all this and I'm like, this makes sense. Well, self-publishing is, self-publishing is fuck things up. Be honest with you. It's, it's also a great thing in some ways because people have the opportunity to be published and good novels can be published. Most of the novels are terrible and you can say, well, that's true of all novels, but you know what? Some of those others look like Pulitzer Prizes compared to most of the self-published books I get because they're not vetted. And if you, and if anybody can publish anything, then it kind of loses its you know power and its flavor. And the fact that we had to fight tooth and nail, you know, to get something that was acceptable, and somebody said, "I'll pay you money for it," which you know, you get. It's not just that it's the money; it's the fact that somebody's willing to pay you money and feels it's worth money. And you know, anybody can put self-publish and, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that's all evil or all wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and now that I'm established, I might self-publish some things of my own, who knows, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that's all republish some things of my own more likely, but those have already been vetted if I did do such a thing, you know? And so it's a, you know, it, it's one of those things that's different and that's not really anybody's fault that the, the markets change that way, but it's a shame. It really is. And, but you know, when I was young, they, they said, ah, markets are terrible. All the pulps are gone. And then you had the people going, the pulps are coming back. No, the pulps aren't coming back, Jack. You can learn from uh, the pulps or what have you. And, and, and people my age, when people call me a pulp writer, it, it hurts my feelings and makes me mad. It pisses me off. And so I have to realize that most people now have no idea what pulp writing is. They saw pulp fiction and now they go, oh, I saw that movie. So now I know. No, you don't. Uh, You know, uh, pulp, you may take aspects of the pulps. You know, you had adventure pulps and horror pulps and all that. But what pulp writing was, was mostly horrible, bad, shitty writing. But when it was good, it was Ray Bradbury. It was Raymond Chandler. It was Dashiell Hammett. Robert you know, Black and you too, can right? absolutely. And then digest magazines came along. But what pulp was called that because it was done so cheap on these cheap magazines made out of pulp wood, yeah. you know, and uh, and they were thought of as disposable. And really, when you go back and read most of that stuff, it is disposable. It isn't particularly good, you know, but it's still it's wondrous in memory for those people who read the pulps. I was the pulps came later. 
I mean, I mean, I came later to the pulps after they were pretty much gone, mm-hmm. but I was reading pulp stories in anthology. You know, you had Lovecraft, you had Robert E. Howard, and you had all of these people who had come from the pulps. And if you bought or picked up or libraried a anthology of horror stories, they were generally from the pulps. That's and all the TV shows that came early on. Many of them were just pulp stories that had been, you know, moved to television or pulp series that had been moved to television or radio shows more likely, more commonly that had sometimes pulp stories or pulp fiction became radio shows became, uh, you know, television and sometimes movies. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. But, but that used to, used to, when people called you a pulp writer, was an insult. So I mean, to this day, even though I know better and I know people don't have it, it really, when that, when I hear it, it's like hearing splatterpunk. I want to beat your ass, you know, and, and I, I know I, I, you know, I'm just talking about how you feel that immediate mm-hmm. thing is because to me, I, I was part of this group that was doing some wild stuff and I'm proud of it, but I never thought of myself as wanting to belong to your fucking club. Yeah. I didn't want to be a, uh, you know, a, a splatter punk writer. I wanted, cause I did, you know, you might pick that story and say that fits splatter punk or that fits horror or that fits Western, but I didn't want my whole career to be defined by one label. And, uh, I, I think that some of my contemporaries, people back then, who uh, were defined by that, had their careers um, jammed up. That's my belief, you know, not all of them, but I think some, I think the fact is they couldn't get out of it. And if also you create a persona for yourself, then you can't escape it. So you've always got to be, you always got to defy that persona because then you got to fulfill that, whether it's the stalking badass or you're the guy that writes the fantasy or, you know, (laughs) once you establish a certain persona, it's hard to get out of. Because I've seen people do it many, many times. You know, you see actors do it all the time. And then once they get that persona established, people don't want to see Sylvester Stallone in, uh, you know, playing Willie Loman. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't mean he might not be able to do it, you know. And that's the same thing with writing is that writing, you know, I always I think it's I think in some ways it's bad financially to some extent and it's bad career wise to some extent. But in a greater manner, I, I made good, had a good career. I made good financial money over time and I'm not stuck. I'm not stuck anywhere. I get to do what I want. You know, I'll yeah. wait till I'm 80 to get stuck. I'll just write the same goddamn novel over and over. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what interview I heard you say that, but you said about yourself, I am not a this writer. I am a writer that writes that. Ever since I heard right. you say that, I changed all the little bios and whatever social media I'm using to that because I I don't even have a novel out yet, and I've written sci-fi, fantasy, crime, and a few other things. I don't want to be stuck, man. I'm only in my 30s. I don't want to get stuck <laughs> in that shit. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't, you know? And and when – you know what happens is that you want to be you want to be in a club, and I wanted to be in the club of writers. You know, yeah. I wanted to be in that more wider general idea. I'm a writer. And, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a science fiction writer. I wanted that label because I didn't know what that meant because I, I didn't think I would ever want to write anything else. Right. Uh, that didn't prove to be true. But once you get into that and accept that label, it's hard to get out of even horror unto itself. 
which I'm labeled with, I can say, yeah, I've written horror stories. And I'm proud of them. I'm proud to have, you know, be a horror writer when I am one, but I am not a horror writer in the absolute, right. you know? And so even that bothers me. Oh, horror writer. You know, I haven't written a horror novel in what, 35 years or something, <laughs> you know, but I write a lot of, you know, horror short stories and I'm proud of them. That's, that's where I think horror is at its best. It's not that I would write an, a horror story or not novel or whatever, but horror stories for me are at their best in short form. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I do it. And if you look at the, the number I've written, there's a bunch of them. So you could say Joe Lansdale has written some horror, but you could also say Joe Lansdale has written some historicals and some crime and some things. I don't know what the hell that is or what have you. And that's because I refuse to accept those labels. You know, and I had publishers that wanted me to accept those labels. And I understood what they were doing. I, I got it. Uh, but I thought, well, 10 years from now, I, I you know, I don't want to write horror. I don't want to write about, you know, vaginas with teeth or some kind of bullshit like that. Because that used to be what you everyone you'd pick up back then. That was the deal. I thought, really, guys, you know, does this have some kind of psychological thing going on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, when and I, so, you know, and it was about it was Friday the 13th. Later, it was like, how many kind can we drill their eyes out or can and, you know, and those elements under themselves are not wrong. But I don't want the I don't want my stories to be just about that at least not all the time, you might experiment with one or two, but Jesus. That makes complete sense. Um, Brent, please jump in after this. Just a comment, not in a jerky way, but when I see, and I see it a lot on Twitter, mainly when some of my peers have like our writer in their profile, I'm thinking of that because of you, like of the publisher or the agent aspect and which obviously goes along with the financial aspect. So I hope that someone hears this and, might reconsider that. Brennan, uh, jump in, sir. Oh, I'm so glad that you jumped in there. I didn't know how to follow vaginas with teeth. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, it we, we were talking a, a little bit about family earlier uh, with, with your wife, Karen. So this seems as good a time as any to jump in uh, with a listener question or three. Uh, so the first one is from Gabino Iglesias, who we, we put it out there. If uh, anybody yeah, wants to send him. over a yeah. question, I heard of that guy. Yeah. Um, and Gabino is not what we call a rule follower. So instead <laughs> of sending a question, he sent three. So first thing he'd like to know is uh, how's your dog, Joe? My dog is super. Uh, what, what, the, the only thing I would say is he's had allergy problems. So I've had to fight his allergy, but he, he's really good. And he says, Hey, right now though, he's got the car and he's gone out since the, he's been vaccinated. <laughs> he really hasn't gone out. He really hasn't taken the car guys. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> little Benadryl in the food and, you know, perfectly that's, fine. That's what it's doing. A little Benadryl. Uh-huh. So Gabino also wants to know when you're going to start giving martial arts workshops at writing events. <laughs> I've given a couple, you know, and I scared the hell out of people. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not kidding. I'm not I'm not doing, you know, taekwondo demonstrations to jump up and kick a board. You know, I, I, I and, and, but, you know, I, I love martial arts. I've done it all my life. Uh, uh, I've, you know, I, I don't intend to quit till I have to quit, but you know, not anytime soon. And then, then I got to have somebody that's a volunteer. That's always, that's always kind of 
bumpy. <laughs> I'd like to see Joe and Raph James White. The two. I, yeah, well, I'm not doing Raph. Shoot, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to think of the two guys. I, on I'm, the, I'm old, but I'm spry. Don't you know? Don't don't get food. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking of the writers I'm aware of that I would never actually want to fight, and you are the two that are on the very top of that list. <laughs> Brendan, what's the third question? I was going to say, that's a long list for me. There's a lot of people I don't want to fight. But, uh, yeah, Joe, you're definitely up there. <laughs> well, me too. Uh, I, I, I don't want to either. You know, <laughs> you know his third question, because uh, his first two were, uh, let's face it, his first two were a little silly. But uh, I love his third question, and I want to hear I want to hear you talk about this one at length. He says, how does it feel to know that there's an entire school of writers out there doing whatever the fuck we want because we learned it from you? <laughs> oh man you know um i actually get that a lot hear that a lot and uh it makes me feel good and and you know i think that another thing that i, I did not do alone but i was one of the people is was the idea of bringing all the a lot more horror into different kinds of things you know i, I mean before silence of the lambs there was act of love the the difference is uh silence of the lambs hell of a lot better but I'm just saying I was kind of ahead of that curve a little bit. And that's not that other people may not have been, too. But I, I'm very pleased of that. In Italy, there's a whole school of writing based on my work. And the, my advice when they ask me is I don't write like me. That's my advice. <laughs> Learn from what I can do, but don't write like me. You know, I mean, I mean, I have some things where I'll show my influences more. And sometimes I kind of think of them as kind of like a little tribute, you know. But most of the time you you want to borrow from these things and put them in that blender I was talking about. But it makes me feel good. And I, and I there are so many writers, too, that say I, I took that attitude because of you. And then later in about 10 years, they're going to say, you've messed my life up because now <laughs> I don't have a, 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 you know, a label. I don't know where to go. But uh, also the, there's there's numerous uh, people who have told me how much the work meant to them and what it had done for them. And that's more important, I think, than anything else, because you can, anybody can tell a story. And if you work hard enough, you can put a story together that makes sense. And, but it's something to do with the texture and your own feelings about things that makes work memorable. Mm. That's why Raymond Chandler is still in print. That's why Ray Bradbury is still in print. You know, you might quarrel with a particular story, but you, those guys, they had something. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you can influence anybody if it's just to do their own thing, that's that's a wonderful thing, you know. Fahrenheit four, uh, 451 is just like it, it's so relatable. And I think as long as humans are humans, yeah. it will always be relatable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great, great novel. His short stories, especially that first 20 years of work, I think. Are, are, they, are his most remarkable. And even some that I think are kind of overwritten and purple, like something wicked this way comes, is just so amazing. It's, it's an American mythology, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's one of the things that Bradbury did. He, he sort of said, you know, we have our own stories. We have our own mythology. And it may be influenced by other mythologies as well, but, you know, that that was the thing that I loved about him. And and I think that I think the Stephen King is that that's his major trick is that his ability to tie traditional horrors 
you know, and Richard Matheson did this too, and other people did this, but I think Stephen King does it in a way where he ties it to the way people actually express themselves. You know, they have this sort of way of talking, and especially for my generation, because I remember when I read him, I thought and still believe, at least at that time, was the first writer I ever read that I thought actually spoke like my generation and had the thoughts like my generation and had this overview like my generation. It was a mixture of, uh, I guess, idealism and disappointment, you know, wounded optimist, perhaps, (laughs) you know, I'm either, I'm either optimistic or pessimistic. I'm, I'm sort of like a hopeful realist, you know, uh, but I've always felt that that was kind of what I got from it. And also that we who had come out of the, of the sixties and had been involved in all of these life changing and social changing events, we begin to have families. We begin to have, hey, man, you know what? Maybe we don't need to live out in the woods under a tree for the rest of our lives. Right. Maybe maybe we really do. We, how are we going to buy our condoms? You know, what are we going to do? You know, so you're going to have to get a job. You're going to have to pick out what you're going to do. <laughs> and, and so it, it's that feeling of, you know, I still feel like I'm a 60s guy because I, I run my own life. I run my own living, you know, and I'm essentially an independent. But you start realizing that you're always connected in some way to a bigger society, you know, and if you do it right, you're positively connected to other humans, though. Sometimes that's hard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So this is a good segue into Sean Cosby's question. (laughs) What character that you killed? S.A. Cosby, Black black Top Wasteland. Um, He asks, what character that you killed off would you want to bring back? Charlie from Happen Leonard. I killed him off in uh, Captain's Outrageous. And uh, I have never gotten so many people mad at me uh, <laughs> as when I did that. In one way, I'm glad I did it because, it, you know, you, you have to do that once in a while to show that, you know, not everybody's safe. Yep. And so you can't feel content all the time. It doesn't mean I want to kill Happen Leonard off because I, I wouldn't have anybody talk about. But the... I think that's the character. It would be Charlie from Captain's Outrageous. Uh, yeah, uh, that would probably piss people off if you brought him back too, because you know there's always. Oh yeah. There's not. He's not coming back. <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> he, he's show dead. <laughs> Brennan, you want to ask Chad Lutsky's question? Oh uh, yeah, sure. I just first of all, I really like just how prepared you were with that answer. You didn't. You didn't miss a beat. Uh, <laughs> answering that <laughs> so uh you you have a book coming out uh a couple days it's not it's moon lake is not quite out yet right it's out in a couple days am i right uh, about that actually it comes out tuesday yeah, there's there's cert- certainly people who have gotten copies or obviously yep. the arcs before that so one of those people but who has uh, already read it is chad lutsky and he says moon lake is a great book 100 percent lansdale through and through And like a lot of your crime stories, there's a growing relationship between two people who tackle a mystery together. Most of the time you do this, Mm -hmm. it's a platonic relationship. And I'm wondering if you have had a friendship in the past that you draw from when you're writing that dynamic, or is it something you wished you had? I think it's a combination of both. I have had friendships like that. You know, some of those friends are gone now. They're died, you know, and so I miss them. You know, and uh, I've had a few friendships that were very much like that. And then one day they weren't, 
those are the, those are the hardest ones. You know, it's just all of a sudden something happens. And, and sometimes it's, it's some event, but more often than not, it's just at some place, the soul fades, you know, and, and you don't, you don't have that connection that you, that you want to have. And you don't know why, you know, I had a number of people who I was very close to, but they became so politically different than they were when I knew them. It wasn't that they had different politics is that they became somebody else. I didn't, I no longer recognized and they added insanity to their politics, you know? So it wasn't just, Oh, we got different viewpoints. I have, and I have a lot of friends who have very different viewpoints politically than I do, but they always have had. So the friendship was established different. So, but I think that that's been weird for me a few times as people that I've known people who I think were uh, very much involved in civil rights and things like that to suddenly, you know, it is much like the, they always say the invasion of the body snatchers or the actual novel was called the body snatchers. Uh, but I think I, I just think, what the hell, man, you know, it's like the, the, their pods. I don't know what's going on. So yeah, I, I think about that and I've had friendships like that, that lasted and, until the death of those friends. Um, I've had the friendships I've talked about that were destroyed. I have some good friendships now, but you know, I, I think you're lucky. I'm a gregarious, friendly guy, but I bet I got count the best friends of, on one hand, you know, and one of them might have a short finger, you know, if I do that, it, it, that's, that's it. So I, I think that uh, you're lucky if you have two or three really good friends in your life. And, and I'm so happy that I have those that I have lost to death and, and time. And even those who have gone on to be different people really now, I have never forgotten their friendship. It means a lot to me. Yeah. I, you know, and I, and I think that you, you know, as an adult, uh, you know, once, once you hit, I'm going to even say past your twenties and you have those let's call them full fingered friends. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> matter right. if there's only two of them better to have two full fingered friends than, right. uh, uh, than a hundred that are just kind of down cut off at the knuckle. Um, right. And, to, and you know, I have a lot of people that I'm friendly with, you know, and I like, and I have a number of people who I think I could become very dear friends with if we just had time to be together or what have you, you know, but, um, I, I do. I think you're lucky if you do. And, and I had fr different close friends at different stages in my life. You know, I had some like were in school and then I had some that, uh, you know, were during uh, the, this, I guess, the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s that we were Vietnam War resistors or what have you. And then you have that batch. And then later on, even in my you know 40s, I had some of the closest friends I ever made, you know, and then I was like one of my friends, I consider one of my best friends. It's just like one day we weren't talking anymore and we weren't mad. It just one of those things, something evolved differently about us, about our personalities, uh, about, you know, how we lived or maybe how we thought and we weren't even aware of it until one day, at least subconsciously we were, you know, I, I can't explain it. Those are the ones that are the mystery to me, you know? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking political difference that's just some sort of something was dialed different and i have no idea what hmm. well now when chad says you know a lot of the um you know the 100 lansdale stuff is uh you know based on platonic friendships it's it's really hard to think of that without thinking of hap and leonard and um I, you know i've seen you say that hap is at least in part you 
so i mean when you yeah when when you write the interplay between those two the snappy smart ass dialogue is that is that how you interact with, with your friends <laughs> It's how I interacted with some of my friends. Yeah. And, and we were funny, you know, and some of my get with, we're still funny. If I say so myself, you know, the, uh, and we feed off one another. And when I get into deep East Texas and I don't really have many friends from the old days, but sometimes if I go there and I start talking to them, I actually become more ridiculous. I'm kind of like, hey, how you doing? Why good to see you? You know, he's just your whole, your whole demeanor begins to change. You know, you, you get cotton in your mouth, but, uh, yeah, I borrowed from that. I would also say that Leonard is part me. You know, it, you, can't, you don't write about anybody in your books. If a dog barks, that's you too, you know. And so some of Leonard's views, because my views are not really just fit in one area. You know, they're they're broader than that. I, I don't believe in being far left or far right. I believe that, you you know, socially you want to be for people. That's what you want. But if you go far enough left or far enough right, you're the same goddamn people. You just meet in the back. And you're just, you know, you, you can be fascist and be left and you can be fascist and be right. You know, either way, you can go either way, it, you know, and, and I don't like the Twitter absolute folks yeah. that, uh, well, you said it this way and we say it this way. Oh, go fuck yourself. You know, I don't care. I What I care about is having uh, a solid belief and care for people and that I want things to go well for people. But as a writer, I present life as I see it. And I also add to that those influences from pulp, I will say that, and those influences <laughs> on literature, I will say that. I'm as influenced by Edgar Rice Burroughs as I am uh, Ernest Hemingway, you know? Mm -hmm. And so those are what people are. They're a, they're a broad spectrum. And if everybody is supposed to fit a certain pattern and nobody is supposed to, you know, be outside of where your little box is, be it left or be it right, then you know, what's the point in writing? Everybody's predictable then. You know what, man? The, to go on that point, it's just crazy to me that we have the greatest technology that in the existence of our human race, which is like a little over 200,000 years. It's at the touch of our fingertip. We're talking and we're across, not across, but we're, we're quite a few distance apart. And I mean, we've had everyone over the around the world on our show, and, and and it's at the we're all in our homes, man. And for some reason, you would think that writers of all fucking people, or reviewers, or anyone that focuses and, and has a love for books and reading, you would think that'd be the one group that could use that to their advantage. And I yeah. Fucking hate it. I love well, you know, you don't hate anything by trying to develop segregated ideas or, or where I only women can write about women or only black people can write about black people. Or only white people can write about white people, only gay people, so on and so on. Because what you do is that you begin to segregate mm -hmm. and now you begin to think within your club. And now there's no there's nothing new you're going to let in because no, that we have we've already got our ideas. We already have what we believe, you know. And I, I consider myself a very progressive guy, you know, especially socially. You know, I've got some areas where like fiscally I'm a moderate. I'm not I'm not a liberal on, on some things. I think some places we ought not spend as much money, but I'm not a fiscal conservative in the sense of not believing that anybody should have help. I definitely believe it. You know, I love Medicare. I love Social Security, all of these things. And, and you know, I, th I think that we need to have something where people don't pay so much for college and things like that. But 
there are other areas where, you know, you could probably talk to me about an individual thing here, an individual thing there, and I wouldn't fit within uh, what people feel like I have to fit. So I'm in their club. I don't want to be in your club. I want to have common sense, you know, and sometimes I'll, I could still be wrong, but at least I'm wrong, honestly, not because I feel like that I have to check, have my, my checklist, you know, what do I think about dog dicks? Well, that's what, because that's what, they, you know, so whatever it is, I just don't like it. I don't, I don't like being told what to do anymore. I like being told what to write. And uh, I think sometimes I write about uncomfortable things. And if you're going to write about them, that's fine. And I don't want somebody telling me you can't use this kind of description because it doesn't fit with our viewpoint, you know, and, uh, I just I hate that because also it depends on the scene. It depends on the story. Yeah. It depends on the character. I, re I remember I wrote um, a, a novel about um, a very bad guy in More Better Deals who is drawn to women and is very sexualized about it, which truthfully, all of us are sexualized. But now some of us are afraid to admit it, that we look at somebody and go, damn, I'd like to fuck them. You know, <laughs> no, we don't talk like that. We shouldn't. But we think it. That's what I'm trying to say. And we don't all think it all the time. But what I'm trying to say is just because you decide that we cannot discuss this or we cannot admit this doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And in this, you have a really not good person and a not good woman, a not good man and a not good woman who see each other as sexual objects because they would. And that because that's who they are. Now, that's why you're showing when you're showing characters that you don't necessarily have to like but you want them interesting. Mm -hmm. So you want people, when I read James Kane, when I read the postman rings twice or double indemnity, those are terrible people, but they're fascinating people. I'm interested in them. And at times I find myself almost thinking I want them to get away with it till I have to go, Whoa, 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 what's wrong with me? I don't want that, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's what I'm getting at is that writing should be free to that and to admit things to yourself and quit being a goddamn idiot and quit pretending so you can fit in with a group and everybody's happy and loves you because it's not going to happen anyway. Nobody's going to be universally admired. And that doesn't mean you should be out to insult people just for the hell of it. But, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's valid. I mean, if somebody's pissed off at you, you're probably doing something right. Because if, if I'm writing about social issues, I'm going to write about social issues. I'm going to show the negatives of it or otherwise it's just, it's just a lecture. What? Yeah, man. I mean, and, and, and let me add one thing and I, then I'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> but the uh, uh, I had a I had a, a, a person. I just he wrote me recently. And I met him and he was talking about how my work had made him see a broader spectrum of people and to not think, you know, blacks are evil or gays are evil. I don't even remember specifically which things he was talking about. But if your work can do that, if Happen Leonard can do that or the bottoms can do that, then you're doing it right. And it's like when you have Huckleberry Finn and the right hates him because he is liberal and he's, you know, he's for civil rights and he's for integration and all those, whatever way they want to put it. And then the left hates him, but he used this word and it's offensive. You go, hmm. So in other words, you both hate him and neither one of you understand him. You know, and I don't want to purely understand him because some part of literature should have some sort of, mystery uh, and let you do a little thinking on your own so that somebody else, you know, chewing your food first. 
Yeah, and and you know what, man? It's art that reflects reality, which reflects art. And uh, it's it's like some those people. I don't think they'll buy your books in the first place. It's hard to tell if they're just bitching. No. To, it's hard. It's hard to know because no. you only know each other through a screen. It's hard to know if they're just complaining because they, quite frankly, don't have much going on in their life. Maybe they believe it. I don't know. But, uh, or they I, see. Or they see one comment you make. And it's usually maybe in response to somebody else and they'll jump in like they know what the fuck you're talking about in the first place and don't, you know, or, or it's just these little things that they get offended about. And those kind of people I used to kind of go, hey, you know what, just uh, we have a little discussion here. And then you realize that they're not wanting to have a discussion. So I just go block. I'm done. You know, I don't I don't need that anymore. If you want to have a real discussion, Twitter ain't the place for it. Yeah. You want to be able to look each other in the eye. And you stand in front of me and call me a son of a bitch and see where that gets you, you know, or what have you, you know. And so, I mean, that's a, it's a different viewpoint. And and uh, and I don't want to get in front of somebody and call them one either. I, I want to be nice most of the time. Yeah. But the, the thing is, is that you you want to have that opportunity to discuss things with people in a true way. And uh, when you own Twitter, it's usually because, yeah, but we don't use that particular expression. So that's it. So that's it. Excuse me. Let me. That's that's my daughter. She's supposed to know I'm on this, you know, but uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, to me, it gets into these little finite things that don't mean anything. You know, they're, they're really it's really not a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they've yeah. turned it into a thing. And, and when I had I had friends when I was growing up that uh, and black friends, white friends, whatever, that used the word colored. And there were people in the 60s who gave them hell because black was the word. And then Afro-American and then African. But every one of those was meant as a positive use, Mm -hmm. you know, but times change. You know, African-American now is a much more popular. I still use black because I that's what I grew up with, you know. So in other words, it's it's where your heart is. And it's also not the word. It's the context. The context matters. Context really, really matters. Yeah. And, I, and one thing, and, I think, and, and this goes to Gabino, actually, he one time had a thing on his uh, Twitter and he said, no, never use the word uh, to describe a woman as being like, you know, uh, uh, candy or food or, you know, delectable. And I thought, well, hell, I've seen a lot of women I thought were delectable, but I don't think all women are that. Right. I mean, when I was younger, maybe a woman thought I was delectable. Probably not. But you want to <laughs> think that, you know. So, I mean, it's 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 context again. That doesn't mean you're thinking, oh, all women are just, you know, something to devour. But it means that you have to give common sense. And I'm, I'm speaking really from from a literary standpoint. You yeah. know, I mean, obviously, you don't want to go around thinking uh, horrible thoughts about anybody or are just based <laughs> off. But the truth of the matter is we all have them to some degree. And what makes us different is how we socialize and how we uh, adapt to culture or how we understand our culture. That's what makes us different, not because we didn't say that, oh, gee, I'd like to have sex with that person or I would like to you know, beat that guy's ass or I'm, I would I would love them to beat my ass. If that's you know, you don't say those things all the time, but everybody has different thoughts that run through their head. And when you're writing, that's the point when you're trying to talk about characters and how they think, not necessarily what they should think and not necessarily how you think after that initial primal brain sends you that message. You know, we're biological, especially when we're younger. All we think about sex, who's fooling who, you know, that's all you think about. Yeah, there's a nice car. I wish I had sex. There's a dog. I wish I had sex. 
that dog reminds me of sex. You know, we <laughs> think like that, but we're socialized to know that that's not what, you know, that we, we can't just respond to that. Mm-hmm. And that can't be all we are, but we have to admit biologically that's part of who we are. Right. Um, just the now last... just everybody. <laughs> <laughs> just one more last point for me. And then Brennan, please jump in. Um, after this is the hundredth episode and we've talked to a lot of people of a lot of different backgrounds, walks of life, literally all throughout the world. And um, I'm glad about Twitter for that reason to introduce us to people, but you're right. That ain't the place, especially when other people jump in because the point was already, it's a telephone game. The points are already lost after the first person jumps in. And then by the fifth person, they're like, I'm pissed off about this. That asshole, he should, you know, go fuck himself. It's like, well, what are we doing? What a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you know, when when uh, people on sometimes on mine, they would just say the most horrible things about black people or whatever. And, one, and you know, they weren't there for a discussion. So you could try to say, hey, man, you know lighten up and, and start looking at people, you know, you're not going to have that discussion on Twitter no. and people who would be that, ex, you know, be that extreme on either side. They're not going anywhere. They're not moving anywhere because they're not there for the discussion. They're there for a gotcha or they're there for, uh, I have the, I have the true point of view because I live in my house by myself and the <laughs> dog won't even play with me unless I tie a pork chop around my neck. And yet I've got this viewpoint. That's the absolute truth. You know, Right. Um, Brennan, please jump in before I go on another tangent. Me and Joe are motorbikes, so please come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I'm I'm actually still thinking about your uh, Huckleberry Finn reference. Now, I mean, that that book was written in the 1880s at some point, And you're, you're saying what's that? I said he's a genius. Twain. Genius. Well, and, and, and that's just it is you're saying that the this enormous group of people hate him because of this reason this enormous people right. hate him because of the other reason but here we are talking about him in 2021 and let's face yeah. it that book's not yeah. going anywhere no um no art no uh, art can be beautiful but art is designed to be un- uncomfortable and you know it's uh, dangerous yeah a character that thought-provoking is going to inspire discussion and going to stick around um, and I think that's just a tantamount example of it. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and, uh, you know, um, Ernest Hemingway, one, probably one of the greatest writers that well, not probably definitively one of the greatest writers that ever lived, didn't always have the, the racial views that I agreed with, but I, I felt that they were his views of the time and they were probably the most popular views of that era. So what that does is it doesn't make me think, oh, that makes it OK, but it makes me understand the history and the psychology and the timeline of all that. And, and that's really not a. a a big thing in his stories, but it's certainly there. And, uh, but when you read his prose, if you read his short stories, the best of them, uh, I, you try to find, find somebody that can beat that, you know, and you might, might not like the kind of story, but the writing is wonderful. And, uh, you know, when you read the opening to farewell to arms, I don't think I've ever read anything as good as those first opening paragraphs, but I, do I throw him out altogether because I have areas where I really disagree and I don't game hunt. I don't like game hunting. I grew up hunting to eat when we were younger right. and uh, you know, we, that was part of what was going on then, but I don't kill anything now to, to eat. 
Uh, I'm a hypocrite in that I still buy, you know, meat to eat, although I don't, I eat far less than I once did, but I don't get joy out of killing things. And a lot of hunters, you know, they'll tell you all the things that they do and, and I get it. I mean, I'm not opposed to people hunting if they choose to, but don't, don't fool yourself. This goes back to what I was saying before. You know why you shoot those animals It's to kill. It's not just to eat because we're not in that position anymore where we have to kill to eat. You know, you go to the store and somebody's killed it for you professionally. Is it cleaner that they shot it and killed it? Maybe, but still you're, you know, you, you've got to accept there's a, there's something about that stalk and kill that comes from the primal background. Now I'm not trying to make a judgment on it overall, but I'm saying we are driven by these primal things and that's what writers, that's their tools. That's what they're, that's what they're doing. That's what they're using. And, you know, there's some people too, you know, you'll say, I, I want to be sure that this doesn't upset somebody, but hell, somebody's going to get upset at a romance novel because their life isn't like that, you know? So hey. to, to me, you've got to judge. I don't, I can't tell you what to think about my work. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you the cliff notes with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny is uh, one of my first paying jobs, I was 12 and I was an umpire. Um, and my dad said, look, half the people are going to be mad, half won't. And it's true for anything, the only people. I was yeah. 12 and I had full grown ass men pissed at me. It's, that's just how humans yeah. are, man. Yeah. Um, Brennan, uh, we have one more question. How about you read that, if you don't mind, so we can get to some of our own? Sure. Um, last question is from Joe Holt. And he says, Joe, are you familiar with the Hammer Films movie Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter? Yes. You should really do a novel based on it. I'd love to read it. And it seems like a perfect concept for you. Well, I loved it when I saw it. I haven't seen it in years, but I saw it a couple of times. I think I saw it both times at the drive-in. And I don't remember if I ever saw it on TV or not, but I know I've seen it at least twice. And I really enjoyed it, but but it's been many years. Okay. Um, Brennan, you got anything else? Otherwise, I'm jumping to a different topic. No, I'm totally uh, snaking you, though, and jumping to a different topic. Uh, so... Joe, when we were talking about Happen Leonard earlier, you know, I mentioned the the dialogue the, um, and it's that kind of snappy dialogue is certainly in that series. But uh, my first exposure to your work was the book Cold in July. And I remember yeah. really being drawn in with the dialogue in that book. So I, I'm just curious, especially with uh, your the way you write, where you uh, kind of edit as you go. What's your process mm -hmm. for writing dialogue and how much revision is there? I probably do less revision on dialogue than anything else. You know, uh, the dialogue is kind of natural for me, but it doesn't mean it's truthful dialogue. It means it gives the illusion of truth, you know, and, and it doesn't mean that a lot of people I know talk like that. If you listen to me long enough, I'm going to start sounding like half college. Right? <laughs> but the, uh, but the thing is, is that, um, also, I was influenced by the old 1940s uh, movies and, and things like, you know, Chandler's novels and movies adapted from him. And he sort of created, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but he created a lot of the noir, uh, you know, dialogue or the way people delivered dialogue and along with people like Howard Hawks and so on and so on. But so that influenced me tremendously. And it mixed with the people that I knew that I heard every day. And I think it also mixed with my own personality, which is kind of uh, um, 
happily irritable, if that makes any sense. I love the description of it. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, uh, throw it to you, buddy. Okay. I didn't want to interrupt. Um, so I just want to go back to about support from family. You also said one other thing that I, I'm adopting a lot of things that you say too. So I'm going to throw myself in that school of writers that Brennan mentioned earlier, but you were talking to someone and you said that in a paraphrasing, but it's not necessarily like important. I'm doing air quotes, uh, audio listeners to have your partner, your wife, your boyfriend, your whatever, um, they don't have to read your material if you're a writer. Uh, it, it, what's important is that right. they, su- they support you. And that doesn't mean – Right. And, and you said that, and uh, that made sense because my wife and Brennan's wife don't uh, didn't really read our stuff. And, and that's never bothered me, um, maybe because of how long – I've almost been doing it for a decade, so I'm kind of used to it. But she supports me, but at the same time um, – she's pretty strict with like, all right, I think you're focusing too much on this. Let's spend some family time together. So you're the one that kind of made me go, uh, that makes sense. So I, I'm just thinking that it's worth mentioning. And if you have anything to throw on top of that, that people should hear that because when I started writing, I heard, well, my wife reads all my stuff. My husband's the first reader. Um, and I'm like, yeah, that sucks. I don't have that. Well, you know, uh, my wife has never been my first reader, but she's read, you know, my some of my stuff. She's read a lot of it. Uh, my my kids have not read all my stuff. They've read some of it, but I don't expect them to. I do not care. You know, the, the thing that I care about is that, that I enjoy writing it, and therefore I'm hoping readers will respond to it. Hmm. And I know every reader's not. This whole thing about being universally admired and everybody loving you, that's that's pathological. I don't understand that. I don't get that. You know, it's it's not that, you know, you prefer people like you than hate you, but everybody I meet, I'm not expecting them to give me a hand job. You know, it's just not the way life works. Um, I'm really hoping that there's a really polarizing effect with my You're opinion. hoping for that hand job, I can tell right now. <laughs> just like in the eyes. <laughs> yeah. W- wait, from you or from Brennan or <laughs> um different I'm, zip codes, man. Not happening tonight. Okay. Well, I'm Irish, so I mean, even if you're in the same zip code, you you need to. Real quick, I want to throw in there, you know, and I I think there's a certain, uh, I can't think of a better word than stigma attached to writers uh, in regards to what you were saying, where we almost, (laughs) we we feel a certain way, whether it's positive or negative, about you know the people in our life reading our work. But I mean, think of it this way: like my my day job is I'm a teacher. My wife and kids have never showed up to the classroom with a bag of fucking popcorn to see me, you know, teach music to children. Um, and and I I don't think that's weird that they've never watched me do that. You know, your your wife right. has never shown up to the wastewater treatment plant to watch you clean up shit. Um, <laughs> she wants me to be very clean as soon as I get home. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, right, no, writing is true. true I mean, you got it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's it. It's uh, I mean, it's you know, my, my wife appreciates what I do. She supports what I do. She certainly read, you know, some of my work. She's not and negative on. She watches all the film stuff of mine. And so, you know, we have that connection and she's a reader. And, you know, she reads less these days than she used to. But 
uh, we've both been readers all our lives. And uh, so she understands that. But I think a lot of my stuff just does. It doesn't appeal to her. And you know what? That's OK. You know, I'm, I'm not again, I'm not expecting to be universally admired. I'm I'm trying to do the work I want to do that makes me happy that also they send me a check. So those are the two things. I like money. <laughs> you have to. You can't keep writing. You know, that's the thing is that I, I write for me, but I'm glad people pay me for. It. Yeah, absolutely. Um Brennan, do we want to jump? Oh, you know what? Actually, I just want to mention one of the episodes that people mention most is accepting rejection that you, Gabino, Cosby, and Cena were on earlier this year. Um, it, I'm glad we did that, and it made us want to do more roundtables. So I got to thank you for that, man. Um, Brennan, do you want to jump into what are you reading? Uh, yeah, sure. Actually, you know what? There's there's one more question I want to throw out that I really enjoy asking to uh, writers who have been doing this for a long time. So, uh, Joe, I'm wondering, out of your entire back catalog, is there one title that you wish got more attention? Out of the back catalog, in other words, not of recent era, you know, of, or of recent, back, some you know, years and, back. And, uh, Anything you've well, done that I, you wish I, people were reading more? Uh, <laughs> probably Freezer Burn. You know, I think that might be one that I think, and, you know, it's, it's certainly got its fandom, but I, I feel like it was kind of got lost in the mix. And the other one is A Fine Dark Line. And I think those two kind of got lost somewhat. I mean, they both sell, they both have their, their fans. So it's not like they're, you know, lost works, but they're works that I don't think have gotten as much attention as I felt like they might've. And of recent times, I, I would say uh, probably Jane goes North and Fender Lizards, you know, and all of those did well. And all of them, you know, sometimes they sold out because they were smaller printings, you know, small press stuff, but those books I'm really proud of. And I, and uh, it, it, the interesting thing is the, the, those last two, for example, are not even in in print except in the original editions. You know. No, well, I would the, ask that. Are there any plans to? Uh, those are both subterranean, correct? Is are there any plans uh, to put those? Yes, they were. They were both subterranean. Yeah, there, there's. Yeah, there are plans for them to come into paperback. You know, awesome. And all the earth thrown to the sky is one that got great reviews and stuff, but it got lost too because it was done as it was a young adult novel. But I think it's the sort of novel anybody would enjoy, you know, and I think that's what a young adult novel when it's good is, is something that everybody can enjoy. And so I'd like for more people to know about about that one as well. Act of Love is one that I want to dive into because that was your debut novel, right? Oh, God, that that's one I almost want to forget. But, you know, <laughs> I was going to ask how you got involved with Zebra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did you get involved with Zebra? Because at the time, you know, like they're one of the biggest or the biggest paperback uh, in the marketplace. Oh, they were you know, they're a low ball publisher back then. You know, they were uh, th- that's where you went when you couldn't sell anywhere else. And that's where I was. Never mind. I couldn't sell anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And my agent, I'm talking about the Zebra of, of 19, you know, 81. You know, I, I'm not speaking for Kensington now because okay. I don't I don't know. Ha- I know some people that published there, so I don't know enough about their their business matters. But back then it was like, it was the upper level of the scum level. And, uh, and so, you know, I got paid pretty good. The book did well. It had an influence on good grief. The people that had written me that that book, you know, 
change things for them. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's, uh, not, not my favorite novel. So I will say that, you know, hmm. Ronald Kelly will, will joke that he went with zebra because it was the last call in the phone book, but it, I don't think he's joking. <laughs> Well, my agent sold it for me. I had an agent at that time and a terrible agent. And, uh, you know, um, but right when I was, I'd fired her already. And then somebody came back and said, yeah, we want to buy this. And so she called me. And so she ended up doing the contract, but I immediately went on to somebody else, you know. Um, I've had a bunch. A bunch of agents? Mm-hmm. Film and literature. The uh, ones that I have now, I've had quite a while, especially my literary agent. We, we've been together a long time and um, I, I don't see myself ever changing agents, you know, because he and I are good. We're close. He does a wonderful job for me. My film agent, I, I, I adore him, too. So I'm good now. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Um, so let's jump to what are you currently reading, Joe? What I'm currently reading is Mission to Volga. And Mission to Volga was written by Ahmad. Ahmad, let's see, how do you say his last name? I might have it right here handy. I probably won't because I wanted to have. He wrote uh, a travel book, and he was a, a Arab traveler, and he traveled into Viking lands, and he was kind of a intellectual as well. And a lot of the stuff that he talked about is used in uh, Eaters of the Dead and the 13th Warrior, which is one reason I, I read it because, you know, I, I'd read Eaters of the Dead. I guess this is my third time to read it. So I think it's his best book. I think it's his best written book. And I think it's his most fascinating book. And But he talks about that particular author. But when I first read that, that book was not available. But now I, I went to Amazon. I got it and I read it and I greatly enjoyed it. The other thing is I read... Uh, I think it's called Renegades and Rogues, which is about Robert E. Howard's The Life of Robert E. Howard. I can't remember the author. I finished it just the other day. Um, the best book about Robert E. Howard, biography-wise, is by Mark Finn, and it's called Blood and Thunder. But uh, those are the two things that I've, you know, I'm reading the Mission to uh, Volga, which I'm about finished with. And a lot of it is other people talking about it, but the, the central part that he wrote or that was translated is just fascinating as hell because he actually was the person to see a real Viking funeral and he wrote it down. So all the stuff we know about it comes from that. And he saw the Aurora Borealis and saw, you know, people fighting in the skies as they saw it with all these swordsmen fighting. So uh, at least that was what he saw and what the Vikings saw. Uh, so it's a fascinating book. You know, you, you, um, you can read it very quickly as, it's not much to it. And the other, and before that I was reading uh Paris review interviews with writers. So I guess that's what I've been reading. That's pretty cool. Um, I read uh, the book on uh, Marco Polo and how he describes yep. Royal Chinese men on um, what he described as he didn't use, I don't think he used the word dinosaur, but it was a dinosaur. And that's just, man, my mind well, is like, sure Marco Polo now, or that if there was one, they're not even sure he went anywhere and that he got a lot of his stories from people who, you know, came to uh, Venice or, or wherever he was and that he was in the trade business for sure, but they're not even sure he went anywhere. <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting stuff that you're always finding out, you know? Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm 
I don't know if they ever cracked this one, but the one on William Shakespeare, if he, if it was really, uh, he didn't actually know how to write. I, I'd be really fascinated to know. I don't believe that one. I believe William Shakespeare wrote William Shakespeare. I, I really do. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not one of those that, you know, Bacon wrote his works or right. some other person wrote his works, but he borrowed from pre, from works. There are, I guess there's some Greek dramas that have some similarities and stuff. So, but you know, it, it, what he did was, it was beautiful work. Was it one person? I kind of think it probably was because it's so goddamn consistent, you know? And, uh, it, you know, I haven't read every one of his plays, but I've read most of them, but who knows? I, you know, I, I certainly don't have the definitive answer on that. Well, he, you gotta love him because it kills pretty much everyone in his stories. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Brennan, what are you currently reading, sir? I, I real quick before I do that, I just I, I love that theorization because I um I I did not minor in art history, but I probably was close enough to taking enough classes that I could have. Um, and the speculation as far as like you know uh, uh, artists in the fifteenth uh, and sixteenth century who uh, the speculation that they trained their students to basically just complete work for them. I, I find that utterly yeah. fascinating, um, and there's and there's so many of them that can draw into that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So I I am reading. I just started like you know not even far enough into it to talk about it really. Uh, Peter Straub's Shadowland. Um, oh yeah. And that's that's my uh, third or fourth Straub in about as many months. Um, so I you know I'm I'm diving deep into this guy's work and. It's interesting so far. It's pretty, I read uh, Ghost Story, I read Coco, and this one's it's different so far. It's 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 interesting, uh, and I'm also reading Goddess of Filth by Violet Castro, uh, who is just a favorite author slash favorite person, uh, and we'll <laughs> be talking to her in a couple weeks. Um, Patrick, what are you currently reading? Uh, about Straub, I have finished Mystery. It's the second book in its Blue Rose. Trilogy, I just finished that recently. I really, I like that, but Coco was so, as, as soon as I started reading that, I'm like, oh man, this is just fantastic. Um, what I'm currently reading is Peter Benchley's Jaws for the first time, and I think that it's, well, it's a great novel. It's so great good. Novel. I, I, I mean, yeah. the, the way that he describes the sharks and the backstories of characters we don't really know much about. In, Beautiful, in right. Oh yeah, yeah, beautiful writing and knowledgeable writing. Yeah. yeah, the way that he combines action with pure brutality and gore with like this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. That's horror. It's a sports, oh yeah, you know, and and <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and it's also instructional. It tells you about sharks. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I did not know a lot of the stuff that was in there. Um, it's Moby Dick if you read it. The novel, it's really Moby Dick with a shark. You know, you've got Ahab, which which it really is. And you got Ahab, who is uh, Quint. And uh, yeah, I mean, when you really think about it, that's what it is. I never uh, thought of that. that. Well, unlike Moby Dick, it doesn't read like a pamphlet from a history museum at points, though, which is which is a nice little bonus. (laughs) Yeah, I love Moby Dick. I, I was one of those people that took me five times to get into it. But one of the things I loved the most was the section about whaling, you know, and I hate the idea of whaling, but the fact that they did this and that historically yeah. this is what was important to them, it fascinated me, you know, 
but it yeah. took me five runs. And I, I think I was in my thirties when I finally read it, you know, I, I got all the way through it on the first try and I, I did find the whaling section interesting, but I, I think that's mostly if I go and get in my car right now, I can be in New Bedford in 15 minutes. So, I mean, a lot yeah. of that is kind of tied into the area's history. Yes. Yeah. The Essex. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. All of that. Uh-huh. Speaking of New Bedford, man, it's so weird, like seeing uh, and reading about what it was like back then. And I used to, I was a teamster and I delivered alcohol for, my late teens and early twenties and new Bedford was one of the areas. It's just, it's not an area you want to be in that night or <laughs> it's rough. Uh, so I'm also reading, uh, James Newman's midnight rain. It's his debut that came out with leisure books and for pleasure read. Um, my pleasure reads consist of you, Joe and uh, Clyde Barker at the moment. And I'm trying to get some more Matheson and Bradbury in there. Everything should be a pleasure read, buddy. <laughs> I'm going to read to make myself miserable. That's okay. Wow. Uh, yep. Okay. So uh, non-show related. Kafka is pleasurable to me. Yep. You know, if I don't like something, I don't read it, but I like, I like Kafka and I've read all of his short stories, you know, and, uh, I, I read those, but they're dark, but they're pleasurable, you know? That's a great point. Okay, so my non-show related book that I'm currently okay. reading. <laughs> Clive Barker's The Book of Blood, uh, The Books of Blood. Yeah. Uh, first time for reading this, uh, I, I really like it. I love his writing. Uh, it's not the first book of his I've read, but he's just, man, the shit he writes – the way he gets into certain aspects of gore, it's just like, wow, I want to get in your head for a minute, and then I'll probably cry. Um, <laughs> so if you are interested, listener, in checking out some merchandise for the show, you can get a coffee mug or a mask or a bunch of other shit. Go to, go to deadheadspace.com, or you can uh, also – sorry, I'm – Kind of stumbling on my own words there. Go to deadheadspace.com. You can go to the store tab and check it out. And uh, Joe, where can people follow you? Well, you can go to uh, the Twitter, which, uh, you know, I'm on there. And I'm also on fan page uh, uh, on uh, Facebook. And uh, I have a www.joerlansdale.com is kind of my web page. Those are the three places. I'm not on Instagram or any of that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and, and my fan page is not a normal Facebook page because I don't accept invitations. I put stuff on there and if people comment on that, that's fine. But I, I don't want to know what you had for lunch or, you know, I don't want to <laughs> argue politics with you and stuff like that. Um, so I keep that kind of separate. I hate, you know, all the pictures of what I ate today. Yeah. If it's something really peculiar or weird, you know, but. Look at this, man. I had a turkey sandwich. It's really good. <laughs> um, Joe, before we start to wrap up, um, we we yeah. briefly mentioned Moon Lake earlier, and that'll be available by the time this airs. Uh, give us a plug real quick. Moon right. Lake. What's that? What's give us question? a plug for give us a plug for Moon Lake. Yeah. You mean just how Moon Lake's coming out and it's uh, it takes place in the 60s and the 70s. And it is de- definitely a um, a mysterious novel. It's got elements of all the things that we've discussed, you know, and horror and suspense. And uh, it starts on a bridge at night in 1968 with 13 year old Daniel Russell, 
who says, my name is Daniel Russell. I dream of dark water. And he does for a reason. And uh, I think I would like you to find that out from the book. But I will say that his father tries to kill them both by driving them off the bridge into the lake. And that's how it starts. God damn. <laughs> and according to yeah. Chad Lutsky, it is 100% Lansdale. So, Joe, what, I hope so. <laughs> what one genre does it fit neatly into? Hmm. That's a joke. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it probably comes close to crime, you know, because it's published yeah. by a crime publisher, but it's got other stuff. Yep. I wanted to say back uh, when I mentioned P- Peter Benchley's Jaws, tying into something we discussed earlier, it's I don't know who would read it, who's a conven- like a contemporary reader now. I feel like a lot of those people that get upset that we mentioned. Uh, probably would get upset with this because it's pretty much from the point of view of like a white rich person in this Martha's Vineyard type island because the way they describe other races. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this besides that uh, it's a book that follows under that umbrella of what we're talking about. And I'm just, I, I'm enjoying the story. I think it's interesting. Not, you tell my Jaws? Yeah, Jaws. Yep. Yeah. Well, Jaws is Jaws is actually criticizing those things, man. It it it's 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 all of these people that are trying to like pretend there's no shark so they yeah, can yeah. have all this business. Well, I know I think you missed the point there. I don't think that 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 is what it's uh, supporting. And and even if it is, it doesn't matter. It's a it's a look into a slice of life that some people believe. I don't have to accept it. I can actually have more than two thoughts in my head at once, and I can come up with ideas on my own. But I don't think that's what Jaws is about at all. You know, I I think that it it is certainly takes place in that, but I don't think it's looking at it good. And I think that the shark represents a whole lot of things other than just a big fish, you know, and I think the fact that people don't want to admit that there's a problem um, actually is very much like uh, Trump. Nobody's dying of the disease. It's not happening here. No. Or like that guy in the Iraqi war and says, you know, nothing is happening. We're in, you can see the American tanks coming in behind him that I think that, that that's kind of what Jaws is doing is that these people are, trying to create this perfect thing this perfect place on this island. And it ain't that way. <laughs> so, uh, oh, I, I definitely didn't mean to come off. Like I meant that's what it was about. I just meant that. I think certain types. Um, and I, I don't, people are offended at that. They let them be offended. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm just enjoying the story. Um, so fellas, final thoughts. Let's start with Joe. My final thought is it's time for an old man to go to bed. So I'm going to do just that. And thank you for having me on. I appreciated it. Uh, my dog needs to go out and he wants he wants to go to bed, too. He's he likes to get up early. And so so do I. So we're going to bed. But I really appreciate being on here. I really enjoyed it. It's ni- nice to talk to you guys. It's great thank talking to you, you, too. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. It's been an honor. Yeah. Uh, Brennan, I'm going to wrap it up, man. We Our final sure. thoughts are let's wrap it up so Joe can go to bed. This has been the 100th episode of Joe R. Lansdale. That's been a real pleasure. Stay tuned for next Monday, episode 101, Sanitize Queerness and Horror with Eric Raglan, Eric LaRocca, Bree Morgan, Eve Harms, and Sophia Ajem. I'm pretty sure I fucked up her last name. I'm sorry. Uh, we're going to talk about, about a lot of interesting stuff. So 100th episode with Joe. Thank you, sir. Have a great night, and it's been an honor. Good night.
deadhead space.